Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Robert Bound. In the shadow of a decommissioned nuclear power station on the southeast coast of England, amongst shingle and abandoned boats, a garden grows. In 1986, the filmmaker and artist Derek Jarman bought Prospect Cottage, an old fisherman's hut, and it's where he lived until his death in 1994. Out of a desolate and unforgiving landscape, Jarman cultivated a verdant patch, gently luring plants and flowers into an unexpected oasis. Jarman was known not just for his green thumb, but his ability to capture the natural world on the page. His book, Modern Nature, comprises both a diary of his garden and a reflection of his own life and diagnosis as HIV positive. For many, Jarman is unrivaled in his ability to take delight in the world around him, however unforgiving. This week, we're looking back at the legacy of Derek Jarman as a new book, Pharmacopoeia, is published. It brings together the best of Jarman's writing on nature, gardening and Prospect Cottage. But let's start off by finding out about another garden. Elise Lammer is a curator and writer based in Basel, Switzerland. Inspired by Derek Jarman's Prospect Cottage, Elise curated her own garden with the grounds at La Beck Artist Residency on the banks of Lake Geneva. The garden also has a research archive to share the works of Jarman and acts as a platform for artistic interventions. We spoke to Elise about the garden and its inspiration. I was really touched by the garden that, that Dan Bristol developed together with Keith Collins at Bold Tenants in 2013. Maybe you've seen it. Keith Collins, who was the last uh, lover of Jarman, was also the keeper of the garden in Dungeness until he passed away in 2018. And this garden that was built on top of an abandoned car park in Peckham in South London I was really astonished because it was flourishing in the harsh climate of this, you know, industrial apocalyptic setting, so to speak. And so the way it embraced this, this urban landscape felt like really in tune with the principles Jarman adopted for his own garden, which I knew from reading Modern Nature mostly. I studied in, in London in, in 2010 and when I came back to Switzerland I, I realized how little the work and legacy of German were known outside of the UK. And as a curator, although I have worked mostly with in white cubes, I have always wondered if such institutional spaces were the best for creating and sharing knowledge. So, you know, the idea of maybe working on a garden was, was very, very appealing. As a kid born in the early 80s, the AIDS crisis left a very strong scar on people of my generation. I think it's a generation with a huge trauma. And for a while now, I've been supporting groups who are lobbying in Switzerland in order to make the AIDS treatment more available. And somewhat German just provided this missing link. So I started thinking of creating a garden in homage to his life and artistic legacy. And I was thinking of a place that would be able to create awareness on HIV, but also a place for a meaningful artistic program, like an outdoor exhibition space, so to speak. And that place could be where Jarman's work 
could provide inspiration to a new generation of artists and also a generation of artists based in Switzerland. And I found the perfect place at, at La Bec, which is an artist residency located on the shores of Lake Geneva in Switzerland. There, together with Luc Meyer, who is the director of La Bec, we started working in 2018 on growing a garden inside the existing garden uh, right by, by the lake. This Swiss garden is actually far from a perfect copy uh, of German's garden. It is German inspired, but the idea from the beginning was to make a reinterpretation of the principles that guided German through his gardening. So with the help of a landscape artist and gardener, we worked only with local and native species. We used found elements to create a scenography like driftwood sourced from the mouth of the Rhone, uh, which is really across La Bec, it's really near. We thought of biodynamic arrangements for the best efficiency. And of course, we avoided fences or wall, which is a trademark of German's garden. I think if we would have stayed there, it would have been a bit too formal and superficial. So at the same time, I was also trying to assemble a research archive with film, books, yeah, everything that was available from German about him too. I wanted the garden to be like an entry point into his work and create a place where people from the region and Switzerland but also the artists doing a residency could come and do research on German's work and simultaneously be sort of confronted with something that had been inspired from his work. I think, and now particularly after or we are at the end, hopefully, of this pandemic. I have the feeling that artists are trying to, to move away from a very institutional context. And looking at an artist who had done it all early on, and also, you know, with the help of the garden, which is a total work of art, because Prospect Cottage was so much more than only an artwork or only a living place you know it was a, it was a shelter it was a place of resistance it was a very it was a symbolic sanctuary it was also a sort of therapeutical place and it carried this pharmacopoeia as German once explained so I think all these things at once that can be sort of contained in such a humble place is what is still inspiring today That was Elise Lammer talking about the garden she's created at La Bec in Switzerland. Now to talk more about pharmacopoeia and Jarman's work and legacy, I'm joined by Philip Hoare, author of Leviathan and Albert and the Whale, professor of creative writing at Southampton University and the curator of the recent exhibition Derek Jarman's Modern Nature at the John Hansard Gallery. <laughs> Philip, it's lovely to have you on the programme today. 
And I wanted to start really by asking about your connection with Derek Jarman, your sort of fascination with and your the kind of crossing roads between you and, and Derek Jarman. Yeah, well, thank you, Robert. And it's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. It goes back to 1976 when um, my parents, trying to avoid sending me to art college where I'd get into sex, drugs and rock and roll, sent me <laughs> instead to a teacher training college in Twickenham in 1976. The when glamour. The club opened. And so within a month, I was... <laughs> <laughs> in the basement of the Roxy Club being shown how to roll joints by dreads on the bar there and literally John Lydon, John Rotten blocking my way in the corridor um, just being archetypally Johnny Rotten but I was at college in, in Twickenham and a friend of mine, Peter Paul Hartner a really great photographer, he was later, later the house photographer at Taboo he showed me this script of a film and he said would you like to be an extra in it and he, he lent me this script and I read it overnight and thought my god that's utterly ridiculous and said <laughs> I don't want to be involved with that that's complete great and it was Jubilee which was Derek's yeah. second major film as it were but from then on because I was after I left college I was working punk I was managing bands running a record label you were at Rough Trade weren't you yeah, I was in Rough Trade yeah, yeah. Um, which was really great and that was of course Smith's when and Derek was making uh, made video of the Smith's when he started doing pop videos which is quite interesting in the 80s Marianne Faithful and various peoples and, and I asked him to make a, a film of, for a single by a chap called Paul Haig, who used to, used to be in a band called Joseph Kay. Derek sort of supervised this, this short film, but we know he never, he, it was actually left to Kerithwin Evans, who was really making a lot of those films for Derek. Um, so we had these meetings, and Derek wasn't there, but we had these meetings at Derek's flat in Charing Cross Road, which is um, above the Phoenix Theatre, Phoenix House, a very symbolic name for Derek. Yeah, and yeah. Um, this, flat, this flat was so tiny. It was extraordinary. Literally, there was one room which had a huge double bed, and that was about it. And, and it was painted that, black, sort of apocryphally yeah, black. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was freaking. It was really scary. And you see, it was a walk-up, so, you know, a tiny little kitchen. I mean, just not even a galley kitchen. And, uh, yeah, it really kind of freaked me out, actually, because I was, I was still quite a timid timid <laughs> suburban boy, and just the idea of what might go on in this, in this room was... Even the passers-by knew which was Derek's flat because it had a witch ball, a silver witch ball hanging in the window. And by that time, I was managing a guy called uh, Kevin Mooney, who used to be in the, used to be in the original Adam and the Ants. He was married to Jordan from um, World's End. And, uh, and so he was friends with people like Lee Bowery and John Mabry and Kareth. And so we were sort of together in that sort of social crew. So Derek was always there. I can't say I knew him very well, but he was just... A person who was there you know mm. so and of course in Soho you know you would see Derek Jarman you would see Francis Bacon you know quite a kind of antediluvian time in a way uh, <laughs> yeah. uh it's a great um, wonderful way of putting it right yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, prelapsarian or, or antediluvian prelapsarian exactly <laughs> and of course the Petrol Boys commissioned Derek to design costumes for and make films for their first tour the It's a Sin tour uh, so sort of knew a bit more through that way. Uh, and then Neil, by that time, had moved to Rye in Kent. And so he was sort of the neighbour of, of, of Derek's yeah. and they'd sort of swap plants. And <laughs> that's, it's such a funny thing, though. I mean, it, you know, there's so much of so much sceniness and a slight amount of seaminess, I suppose, as well. And yeah, as you say, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all of those are all sort of ticked off the list. It's it's phenomenal that we get from that and Jarman's kind of, in Jarman's work and his public life, his professional life and his private life, that we get from that to this, to Prospect Cottage and this garden. 
it was and, and his writing about it which is so evocative sort of bringing in myth and 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 land and sea and nature and artifice and all the rest of it first of all maybe we should while talking about pharmacopoeia was Derek Jarman would you put him in a na the nature writing section in the bookshop for a start well, you, no, you, probably, you probably hate all sections, as it were, uh, yeah, yeah, shops, think, but yeah, you know yeah, what I mean. I, sort of instinctively, yeah, being, <laughs> being a punk still. Yeah, um, and sorry, I, I, did, I did find Leviathan in, in nature writing in Waterstones, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, my, my book, Spike Island, about Metro Hospital, was shelved yeah. in, in nursing. So uh, <laughs> it would be a really freaky training manual for a nurse. But um, yeah. but yeah, so, I mean, it's quite interesting where, you know, Derek's, I mean, I think Derek sort of met his metier in the garden that was just waiting for him and it's mm. really interesting for the um exhibition that we i curated with the john hansard gallery that had really early derrick piece painted in 1966 of tilbury power station and it's very just it's reduced to shapes these like mm. twin towers on the horizon uh, and horizon which is clearly maritime or marine anyway and it was called elements for a picnic and it was dated 1966 by derrick and he was this is well at the point when he was still he was working with Ken Russell and, and designing uh, opera and stuff. And it's a real presentment of the landscape Dungeness. And it really struck me that Dungeness was waiting for him. And it was kind of almost the apotheosis of his career, the sense that this house, which was, really was like Dorothy's cabin from Wizard of Oz at the end of the day, he describes in that great storm of 1987 that 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 the house is shaking and he thinks it's going to take off and be twirled around in a tornado. Yeah. So all those things, and also, you know, the, the sort of post-apocalyptic vibe of, of Jubilee, all these things come to pass in a way in this little black hut, dropped down in this, what's effectively a desert, a biggest shingle beach in Europe, I think it is, and it becomes a kind of lightning conductor for everything. And it's funny because one of the other one of the people we were working with in the John Hansard show was is Howard Suley. And so when you start to look at the garden and Prospect Cottage with when you meet Howard, who's an extraordinary character, very tall, very calm. He has an air of a Buddhist monk in a way. Mm -hmm. You can see that when he met Derek, who was the most ebullient, the most, whoa, let's do it sort of person, <laughs> two of them together created that really elemental laying out almost like a, a presentment of the 21st century because in in modern nature Derek's writing about climate change he's mm. writing about all sorts of things which seem very prophetic now you know and I think that's why I found myself from having experienced of being around when Derek was making his art and you know I went to the premiere of the garden with with Neil and things like that so I was watching mm. that it was when those journal came out that something suddenly all came into place in a way this allowed him to make sense of the choices he'd made and his yeah. sort of escape from the city in a way. Yeah. It seemed like that, that mm. after modern nature, it was a way of sort of putting that as much as it seems, and I want, this is my, going to be my next question about the fact that he, as a nature writer, he seemed to not want to classify things. You know, he wasn't a butterfly collector. He wanted sort of, you know, nature to be kind of mad and turbulent and messy as much as, not, not as a reflection of anything like his own, beliefs or life or anything like that but I think he wanted to drill down into the mythical with it all the time and that that kind of comes out in pharmacopoeia where he kind of 
he summons up sort of what seems like sort of Renaissance Italy and magic spells and all these sort of former uses for plants and the, the derivation of the, the, the names, the etymology of their nicknames and all the rest of it. There's such a kind of wealth and depth of knowledge. And I think sort of a healthy regard for yeah, myth making, I suppose, Philip. Anyway, but despite that, he wasn't. Yeah, he didn't want to be pinning butterflies on a board somehow. Is that does that sort of sound sound like Derek John? I think that's exactly right. And if you look at the library in Prospect Cottage, it's incredibly academic in many ways. I mean, it's mixed up with like gay porn and stuff, but it's, <laughs> it's you know, it's Gerard's Herbal, you know. And then the whole thing about the, the plants having these multiple identities. So lambda smells nice, but it also summons up ghosts. You know, a mm. fox glove might fit on your finger as a little sort of purple glove, but it can also arrest your heart. Yeah. The sense of multiple meanings to things. Um, and, it, and that's very alchemical. It's very medieval. You know, Derek was a kind of medieval monk. Was it you that described him as a source of contemporary or modern sort of Dr. D or something? I yeah. think it, and I love that. And it seems yeah. exactly that. This kind of, and his garden was like the garden of a great creative man, but a warlock as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He was kind of part Linnaeus, you know, mm. this kind of quite rational person. But at the same time, you know, he believed in magic, but not kind of, not the kind of Alistair Crowley thing, something rather much more fluid and, and, and interesting than that, you know. So the act of making art there was him being there, Howard coming along, then starting to make the garden, which of course is, a, and this is the other thing about Derek, no boundaries. Mm. That was why that garden, because it's not really a garden, it's a kind of leeching out of Derekness into the, <laughs> into the Dungeness <laughs> of yeah. Dungeness. And so, you know, I don't remember anyone had started to make a garden like that before. Pe Beth Chatter was doing it a little bit in Essex. I mean, that's when that starts. But it's the notion of building something in, this, in the shadow of two nuclear reactors of a, a seaside which you can't see the sea. I mean, it's very difficult to actually even see the sea, but it's there. All these mm. ominous presences, you know. And then he goes out and he starts boiling up these great vats of pitch, you know, like these really something out of Macbeth in a way, <laughs> to make these paintings. And the other thing I think that, that really links to that is this notion of that Derek was so, everything he did was made with his hands. I mean, even the films, they are so analog. You know, it's such, it's such a different world to now. It was, he, it's like, Keith, apparently, Keith, apparently Keith told him he had to get to the modern world and go and buy a computer. And he sent Derek off to buy a computer, like an Amstrad 9512 or whatever <laughs> it was was going on around that time. And Derek came back with a new pen. Um, <laughs> That's so, rather beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, nice gold, gold Schaefer. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and also that sense that Derek didn't really own anything. Art, what, I mean, you know, we become post the 80s, especially in, in London, we became so used to the idea of art as a commodity, mm. its value, especially post the YBAs, that really sort of changed. You know, and it was an ironic take on capitalism theirs, but it was also started this extraordinary art market, which ended up in freeze and, and yeah. whatever. And so he's before that. He's before yeah. that. So all that stuff, he gives stuff away all the time. He, he didn't really make any money. He didn't really own anything. You know, that tiny room in Prospect in, in Phoenix House, 
that was his only he didn't own the place he invented it <laughs> but he, he was he what i watched um the head-to-head or face-to-face interview that he did with jeremy isaacs maybe two years before he died mm. and he's he's such a handsome man and such a well-dressed guy has such a good look didn't he he had this lovely he's got these lovely kind of thick corduroy tra- trousers a sort of a tweed jacket looked really he looked very he looked so together I suppose just that natural style and I, I, I wanted to ask you Philip about you know his films were done with almost on no on almost no money but looked so gloriously kind of the costumes were, were phenomenal the sets were beautiful but he did a lot with very little and you might say that Prospect Cottage in the garden was that as well? I mean, this was as we said. You know, he was growing roses and 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 all sorts of plants out of nothing, out of pebbles, out of you know the thinnest of gruel uh, uh, for a gardener. Is that does that sort of play into his sort of aesthetic and artistic legacy? The garden being just another part of his filmmaking, artwork, writing yeah. in that sense. Well, it absolutely does, because remember, he's coming from two periods of austerity. He's coming from the 40s when he was born. Mm. So he's really in, he's really, he he comes into that neo-romantic point of art during the Second World War, when people are looking towards nature as as a kind of alternative to Armageddon, to apocalypse, the the, the war especially. And his parents are classics at home counties. It's that... You know, it's it's Powell and Pressburger. You know, it's yeah. kind of matter of life and death. That's kind of way. So he comes from that point, and then he is starting to. He finds his artistic sort of swing, as it were, in the seventies, which is, of course is complete collapse. You know, it's um, it's blackouts, it's industrial unrest, um, a country seemingly uh, tipping towards anarchy, which mm-hmm. is why Caravaggio is so astonishing because he mm. he makes at, at that point this, but, but when when the lavishness of life seems to have been destroyed or being eroded by political uh, turmoil, he makes you know, this film set in in Roman times. So lush and sort of so beautiful. lush and so you know with a Latin uh, yeah. uh, uh, dialogue. Um, mm. so and then he does and he does the same thing with Jubilee because he's a time traveler. You know, it's like Tim Morton, the eco philosopher, says all artists from the future, and, mm. and you really see that in Derek. And he's he's desperate. He's desperate to burst either backwards or forwards. That's why he appeals to like the old school in a way. And he appeals to the kind of the new wave. He appeals to the middle class because after all, he's very middle class. Well, you put that in your in your <laughs> essay, Philip, in Derek Jarman's Modern Nature, which was a book of essays that accompanied the exhibition you created, uh, curated at John Hansard in Southampton. And you say it's the daring culture that the middle classes are, al- are allowed to like, sort of to paraphrase. They love it. They love yeah, it. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yes, um, exactly. You know, I mean, it's like Oscar Wilde, it's like Noel Cann, great queer figures. They are brought into the British bosom, you know, because of their naughtiness. Yeah. Like, people always underestimate the actual um, British. I don't like to be nationalistic about things, but, you know, uh, the, 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 the actual taste for something outrageous, something inspiring, something avant-garde, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, um, and then, and then, because, and then the thing is, because he comes, then, then Derek, together with Howard, makes that garden. Howard m- makes that book out of the photographs from that time, the the the, the Thames and Hudson, Derek Jarman's garden, which was, in a way, great Derek's greatest work, in a way. Or I mean, it just because that becomes 
such an influence, not just on gardening, but the way you look at the natural world, you know. I mean, uh, and his, his journals are called Modern Nature because this is funny interchange he has with Maggie Ham Hambling, where he tells Maggie Hamblin that he's making this garden and he's writing a journal about it and shit. I never imagined you as a nature lover, Derek. And he said, well, no, but it's a sort of new kind of, he said, oh, you've invented modern nature then. Yeah. You know, there is this sense of something that is environmentally aware, but punk as well. Yeah, and it's that thing, and this is nature writing as a, as a sort of big, weird sort of tent has come to encompass so much, so much writing in the last decade. It's become very, in the pub, you know, for publishers, I suppose, an, an easy bracket in which to put certain sorts of writing. And it, it's got a very, it's a very wide ranging genre, such as it is. Yeah, we sort of started off, Philip, by sort of talking about that. It feels like Derek Jarman, would, would Derek Jarman have wanted to have sat in that category? He would probably have been surprised that he would even be spoken spoken about in these terms. And we're, we're talking, we've talked about his films, his paintings, his life, his kind of role as a kind of electric conductor of creativity for many people, including yourself, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And... But we're talking about his garden, you know, we're talking yeah, about yeah. him as a gardener, which yeah, he, yeah. He, it seems to me that he'd be surprised as the man that had this black flat on the Karen Cross Road yeah. in Phoenix House, that we're, we're here spending half an hour on the radio talking about his garden in Kent. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. a weird full circle somehow. Perhaps. Well, I think it's about sensuality, really, because, I mean, mm. his, his experience of London is, yes, it's Soho and... Heaven nightclub, but it's also Hampstead Heath, yeah. and which becomes a kind of full of satyrs and centaurs, these sort of, you know, the strange sort of planner sexuality, which <clears> is very abandoned, ultimately dangerous. And of course, that's why it's attractive, because it is dangerous. But the counterpoint to that is, is where he, he then gravitates to, to Dungeness, which is black too, it's black with stars, and it's another kind of performance. You know, everything is being enacted. Um, it's funny because everyone, someone, when we were installing the work at John Hansard Gallery, and Howard Sulu was exhibiting some of, his, some of his photographs, and someone said, wow, he just must have lived like, you know, like kind of a recluse. No, there's hundreds of people about there's just all these yeah. people coming and going you know these beautiful naked boys and naked girls too and all these crazy things happening you know um you don't want to be defined by one thing mm. because as soon as you're defined by one thing people start judging you on that you need to have moved on to the next thing before people can draw their breath so i think that's very that's very much what his art was about. I wanted to ask you, Philip, also about you mention your essay in the book that accompanies the, the John Hansard exhibition is so wide ranging. It's a wonderful piece and it brings in so many strands that touch or are touched by Jarman's work or the, the themes in Jarman's work. And you mention, you, you know, someone that you've written about at length in, in your book, Albert and the Whale, Albrecht Dürer. And W.G. Sebald as well. And I felt that there, in, in the link with Derek Jarman, I felt that there was a link there between the kind of um, the sea, obviously, with Dürer and the and but also with the idea of the wanderer coming home almost, you know, with, with Jarman at Prospect Cottage. What are the themes for you with linking this great German writer of the Rings of Saturn and other 
books and Albrechtura and Derek Jarman and, and that kind of Kentish landscape. Yeah, well, that's a really great observation. I think they're all figures in a landscape. You know, mm. Dura is kind of an existential neo-romantic, as in proto-romantic. He's a romantic figure. I mean, he looks romantic, his long curly hair, and he's very... I mean, he... In, he in could be part, in a Jarman film, couldn't he? He could completely <laughs> be in a Jarman film, completely. And so this sense that it's the placing of the human body in the landscape in a way, and then relating to that landscape. And for Jarman, it's a lot about his childhood, the recollection of his childhood, you know, the moving around, those seascapes he, he knew as a child, like Portland Bill in Dorset, close to where he grew up. And he makes these uh, Super 8 films in the early 70s with Andrew Logan uh, down mm. in Dorset. And the sense that transformation, metamorphosis, it's all this stuff that anything can happen in those places, you know. So those early, I love those early 70s films. You know, he's a contemporary of, you know, rock music and Bowie and that sort of thing that's happening. That early art rock, you know, a precursor to, to punk. Mm. Um, and, and that's very powerful still. So he's he takes the fine art of the 60s, you know, the influences the, of the 60s, people like John Minton and Keith Vaughan mm. and stuff, and then melds it with like, the clash and the sex pistols yeah. and that's why i think it has this energy still and has that why it, a lot of young people i've taken some of my ma students in to see jarman's film the garden and they it's like it was made today you know yeah they, and for anyone interested in intervention and interruption and sabotage you know mm. he's still really he holds he holds the the ace card really I wanted to ask you about what people see, what people are finding in Jarman today. And it does feel like that. It feels so fresh. And but watching back a bit of bits of the Tempest and stuff, just the colours still zing off the out of off my television screen, off YouTube, off wherever you choose to watch it. We'd probably recommend the BFI player. We should probably say that. But um, these things are so fresh, so zingy, and they feel daring now. They still feel so, yeah, they seem to kind of cut out the middleman and they're just, you're watching creativity. <laughs> you know, you're really, you're sort of right in the teeth of it somehow, that, aren't you? That's exactly it, isn't it? You can, yeah. you are totally in it. You know, you, partly because of the way they're edited, there's almost not edited. Mm. It is kind of thrown down and it's so energised and, and it's just like kind of, it's not taking it serious, but doing that seriously. So it's that, yeah. it, there's, the thing about Derek, it still seems amateur. So it seems as though you are you're not being rejected by a kind of professional sense of a lot you're of complicit money. in it, aren't you? You're complicit. And you are exactly complicity. That's exactly yeah. it. Um, you could yeah. be part of that story. And that because and that's what he was like in real life. Everyone who worked with him just said it's the generosity, he's just pulling you in and like. You know, he'd phone you up, I'm probably very annoying, he'd phone you up three o'clock in the morning saying, right, let's do this. <laughs> Got an amazing uh, idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, he's exactly what he would do. And I think having that third, and of course the thing is, is that there's the end. There's the fact that that was all brought to a very, you know, abbreviated point, you know I mean? Because of his diagnosis and his very public death, mm. a death curated much as the way Bowie curated his death. So Derek curated his, and that's why meeting Howard was so pivotal in that, in, the, in his leaving of the world was completely documented, and he was insistent that Howard would photograph him coming out of Bart's hospital on the week that he'd been told he was about to lose his sight. And he looks at the camera and he says, 
this is great. I know the first film I'm going to make when I can't see anymore, which is blue. Yeah. Um, and and you know we had one of the photographs which I was at first really very dubious about showing, but which displayed in the John Hansard Gallery, which is of, of him on his deathbed the day he died. But such as is, you know, as you, you talk about, he was such a handsome man. He was still handsome, even as a kind of desiccated corpse. I mean, he made a beautiful corpse. I mean, I mm. think that sounds harsh to say that. I think he would love me to say that. And I love the way that he's, he's now back, that he's buried on the edge of D Dungeness yeah. in the churchyard, in a sort of bank, grassy bank with this big monumental stone. And Keith, his partner who died two years ago, is on top of him. <laughs> I, mean, I really love that kind of like, old habits die hard <laughs> exactly exactly he's buried next to a medieval church and it is like a German movie you know it's yeah wonderful. and just finally Philip I mean if I feel that his film you know his life of Caravaggio was subjective it was uh, you know his garden was subjective his writing was subjective it was all and I always I'm always drawn to artists like that who are who you know that they're giving you an you know and we, to, to bring it back to W.G. Sebald who made up you know you can't you can't plot the routes that he walked around Suffolk because the, some of them don't exist I love this throwing in of the subjective the artist's hand you could see his working in, in a kind of good way as you sort of say with some of those films is that sort of fair to say about let's bring it back to his garden and the subject of the book pharmacopoeia is that fair to say that that you could see his hand in everything and that was what was good about it rather than him trying to have the sheen of the artist i mean with this supremely homemade garden absolutely and that's why i i love it and I, I, as a writer myself uh, uh, that sense of being an objective artist it just doesn't work because yeah. it's your job to bring people in to show the whole thing is performative and the whole thing is is inclusive it's a the, the bring in in the same way as the garden is never ending because it you know it just peters out it just yeah. you know because it's it's really weeds in a way sprouting up out of the shingle and Derek is the sower he's just casting this seed like mad and and there is something very sexual and sensual about that very regenerative the sense of the power that Derek is still here with us is because of that, because his art is still living and growing there. You know, it's, it's sort yeah. of his greatest work, really. It's phenomenal. Philip, thank you so much. It's so wonderful to have you on the programme. You speak obviously brilliantly and eloquently and unerringly about it. Thank you so much. Oh, Such you. rich pickings, aren't there, with, with, with this stuff. And I love all the cross ways that it, it takes as well, you know. So wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Elise Lammer and Philip Hoare. And Derek Jarman's Pharmacopoeia is out now. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph chung And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.